He was here for 32 years. For 32 years, the Son of Love was wrapped inside of the skin of man. For 32 years, his body was filled with the same hopes that you've held, the same dreams that you've deferred, the same sorrow that buries you to sleep, and the same wonder that keeps you awake. He was passionate, perplexing, comedic, and kind. He was political, pointed, unreasonable, and sincere. But most of all, he was good. He was a really good man. For 32 years, he kissed the babies, and he empathized with the outlaws, and he made space for all to belong and all to be loved. For 32 years, there was a healer that touched all of the wounds inside of the world, though on the last week, he seemed as if he chose to carry them all on his own. To those who knew him best, the ones who woke the sunrise next to him and drank wine during his stories at night, the wide-eyed dreamer that they had set out to follow, was now the worn-down leader who was about to fall. And then came that night when he did. It happened in the garden outside of the holy city, where the aroma of oil was as close as a whisper. Jesus walked under the stretch of the mothering trees and over the discarded skins of crushed olives, pausing along the way to pick each one up, to hold each one out and stare each one down until each one eventually stared back, like a mirror like he would be who they are now. In some ways, the disheveled shells of the olives were the only ones who understood what it was that he was about to undertake. And the gravity of their shared fate threw him on the ground next to those who felt it first. We were still hours away until Caesar's whips and Roman nails would savagely dismantle his body. But there in the garden, the body of the Christ shook as if every inch of him had already been cut. His breaths were labored and loud. His words were muttered and messy. The skies were full of stars, but his eyes were full of tears, and there was blood now swimming inside of his sweat. The only relief he had to reach for on a night like this was knowing that he brought along some friends, and they were there to hold the heavy with him. That is, until he turned around and he saw that they weren't. They were fast asleep. And he was now alone. He was dying before the eventual killing would come. The pain of tomorrow had already hijacked his final hours of this day, but before he disappeared from the face of this earth, he reached out his hand one last time, hoping that somewhere, somebody, someone would pull him back to life. He cried, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. If there's any way for you to get me out of this, to let me go, if there's any way for me to say no to this, but still say yes to you, if there's any way I can be fierce and faithful, I will serve you and love you and have babies that will be good and true. I will do whatever you ask if there's any other way. But... If there isn't any other way, if your will outweighs my want, then I will go. I'll be the seed. 
and you can plant me in the soil. Jesus calls on Abba, Father, Dad, but Dad doesn't pick up the phone. Like a child who believes that dad is just going on a quick trip and he'll be back real soon, while Jesus is drowning in trauma and despair and loneliness and pain, the seed still calls the gardener dad. The son still hopes that dad will eventually come around, that dad will eventually fix this. He'll make things right, that he won't have to go where no one should ever have to go. The son still sits by the door waiting for dad, expecting dad to pull up in the drive with ice cream and a baseball glove and a happy ending to this horrible night. But dad never does come. The ice cream is never served. Capillaries burst, lips quiver, the end is near and the crimson blood seeps out of his pores. All because dad didn't come. And for this solitary life of this one good man, a life marked by calling the divine his dad, this would be the last time that he would ever do so. For in a few short hours, after the Christ had been flogged and what's left of him was frail, when his lungs moved closer to moving no more, when the Christ was crushed alone on the cross and the crows drew near in the sky, eventually the ninth hour came and Jesus cried out, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in the recorded life of Jesus, Jesus speaks to the dad he once knew as a stranger that he's yet to meet. He calls his father, his Abba, his dad, God a generic term that one would use if they knew of a God but no longer were sure of what exactly it was that they knew. And the moment that these words fell out of the little that was left of his mouth, people who were there said that the fear in the land became so palpable that even the sun had to flee. The whole world went black. The ground started to puddle up in red. This is where we start our story tonight. We don't start in a celebration of God's abundance. We start in the agony of God's felt absence. Fidelity to Christ requires of us to name the spaces where it's felt like God has been gone. Where are the spaces in you? Where did it feel like you were alone in your suffering when your friends all slept? And you called on a God who would not speak. What happened to you? What happened when that cup was not taken from you? None of us want to go into our shadows. None of us want to name the hard, scary, abandoned places of pain. But it is the will of love for us to do so. Because if it's true that Jesus came to save the lost and raise the dead, then we cannot be saved until we first get lost. And we cannot be raised until we're ready to die. Jesus cannot be our answer until we dare to embody the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did you go?
and the hierarchy of our relationships and the roles that we hold within them. Friendships rest at the bottom. On the ladder of life, partner, parents, and children, each of these groups are a few rungs up above the friends that we love on the bottom. But don't confuse bottom with bad, because in many ways and among all of the rungs, the bottom rung is the most beautiful. Unlike our family relationships, where we are legally or biologically bound together, there's no obligation on the bottom. You have to opt in on the bottom. Friendships are not a product of our inheritance, but are produced by our intentions. Friends are friends because they want to be, and we want to be, which is a double agent, a good and a bad, seen as you have no control over keeping the one who found a way into your life from ever finding a way out. And of course, over time, they often do. The older we get, the less friends we keep as each year tax on more people to be prioritized, duties and demands to be met. After all, it's easier to skip out on grabbing a drink with Johnny than it is to miss out on your kids' play at school. It's no wonder, then, why, we, why there is a bittersweet flavor that we taste at weddings amidst the celebratory affair. We bring all of our friends together to both celebrate a new union and in some ways, and in sad ways, to say goodbye to old ones. Being a friend is a beautiful and a burdensome wonder. And I think about that when I think about Peter and Jesus. 
about their choosing and being chosen, their starts and their stops, and all the strain that took place in between. Peter was the one that Christ kept the closest. If you counted on all of the disciples who get seen in all the gospel stories, John and Judas pop up 20 times, Andrew 12, Thomas 10, and Bartholomew, James, Simon, and Thaddeus 3. But Peter is present on almost every page, showing up over 120 times with Jesus by his side. For in a few short hours after the Christ has been flogged and what's left of him is frail and his lungs move closer to moving no more, when the Christ is crushed alone on the cross and the cross draws near in the sky, the ninth hour will come and Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in the recorded life of Jesus, Jesus speaks to the dad he once knew as a stranger he's yet to meet. He calls his father God, a generic term that one would use if they knew of a God but no longer were sure of what, it exact, what exactly it was that they knew. And when, the, and when these words fell out of the little that was left of his mouth, people who were there said that the fear in the land became so palpable that even the sun had to flee. The whole world went black as the ground puddled in red. Jesus cannot be our answer until we dare to embody the question that Matt spoke of earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, tragically, on this particular weekend, we don't remember Peter for where he had always been in our sacred books. We remember Peter for where he wasn't. We don't remember how Peter was the first to call Jesus the Christ. We remember how Peter was the last to call Jesus a stranger. Why are we this way? And I don't just mean in how we treat Peter, but how we treat ourselves. We only define Peter's story by Peter's darkest moment because we've yet to find a way out of ours, to find a way out of the wound that she gave us and the wounding that we gave them, to find a way past the addictions that we can't quit and the marriage that we couldn't keep, to find a way to call the kids that we've lost touch with and the career that we ourselves have lost. We still get stuck in our stains and we let the wound grow so wide and for so long that we've just accepted that it's ours to fall into. Jesus, however, he's already once kept his friend Peter from sinking into the water and would not let him sink in this wound. He refused to let this happen to Peter, and so he told Peter what was about to happen. On the night before the night of Christ's execution, dinner plans were made in the upper room deep in the heart of Jerusalem. And at the end of the meal with the bread and the wine and the Judas all gone, Jesus turned to face his closest friend Peter and he looked at the rock that the church would stand on and he told him that he was about to sink. He told them that their paths were about to part and when, and when they come for me, you will run from me. That's what he said. But hear the heart behind why he was saying it. Jesus looked at Peter and said, 
I've been pleading in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail so that when your feet start to fall, when your character starts to crack, when you find yourself in a place that you thought you'd never be and it's dark and cold and lonely and you feel heavy and shamed and ugly, know that I already know and you can still come home. I still choose you as my friend. I'm still opting in. I know our story will strain and start to slip, but that's nothing new. I've called you a soulmate on one day and Satan on the other, and yet we're still here. What you do cannot change who I am, and I'm your friend, Peter. That'll never stop because I won't ever stop. Poet William Blake said, one of the greatest tests of life is to be able to endure the beams of love. And oh, how heavy those beams can be. If they aren't handled right, foundational rocks can turn into sinking stones who never rise again. When Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus was praying that long after your denial and betrayal and your feet find you around all kinds of fires where your convictions will go up in smoke, Find the fortitude and faith to bear the beams of love. In the same way that blue can speak of joy and the blues can speak of pain, love comes with shades of both, sometimes out of nowhere, blindsided out of the blue. But come what they may, I'll keep coming for you, for you are Peter, the rock, and on you, the one who both sometimes stands and sometimes sinks. I'm building up a people with the same kind of problems that I am forever bound to as a friend. My eternal love cannot be canceled by episodic lows, for I do not let my friends sink. Jealous for me, he 
Love's like a hurricane And I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how by the grace in his eyes if grace is an ocean we're all sinking and heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about all three men for the moment remaining alive the smell of blood had already brought in the birds who circled their upcoming meal from above while the crowds cursed their bodies from below two of these men were tied to their crosses with their arms roped behind them bringing on a slow and agonizing suffocation that would take a little time the man in the middle however they destroyed him differently they wanted him gone as soon as possible. Spared of the rope on the way to his room, this man was pinned on the plank with nails and the life was leaking out quickly. Three men joined together on this day to die for the crimes against humanity. At one point, between the groans and the sighs and the cries and the whys and all the other inarticulate utterings to be heard at once, and the thief on the left heard the taunts on the ground and he joined in. He yelled at Jesus and said, are you not the Messiah? Are you not the Son of God? You say that's what you are and so be who you are. Go on and save yourself. Jesus looked at that man. Jesus said nothing to that man. 
Now, on the other side, on the right side, there's a different kind of man, a man we have given in history's traditions the name Dismas, a name that comes from the Greek word for sunset. He is the one who speaks up and over the man in the middle to the crook who is two crosses down, and he starts advocating for the advocate. He starts shouting, do you not even fear God? You and I, we're subject to the same kind of condemnation, and if we're honest, the punishment fits the crime. But this man, though, he didn't do what we both did. He's innocent. Jesus, dismissed said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus looks at the man who was looking at him, and he says through slurred words and through bloody lips, man, how could I forget you? Today you will be with me in paradise. Before the sun sets on the sunset's life, Dismas reaches one more time. He is dying naked on a cross with family weeping at his feet and his victims cheering in the crowd. His opportunities to make wrongs right or help an old lady across the street or give his money to charity and add to his spiritual resume, they're all gone. That time, it's all over. But the time he still has, this time now, he uses it to reach. He calls the man in the middle Jesus, which is the only time in any gospel account that any person ever addresses Jesus by just his name. Typically, there are the bells and whistles of Jesus, son of God, or Jesus, son of David, or some other form of particular respect, but we are now far past pretense, and Dismas needs a hand to hold as everything comes to an end in the midst of this disaster. He shows up and he arrives as he is, even knowing that he isn't much. And yet still, while the sun is setting on the sunset's life, he looks at the sun of love in the middle, and he asks for one ticket to paradise. And love looks back and says yes. For most of us, in the wake of loss and pain, left with regrets in us and empty chairs around us and should-haves and could-haves but didn't, we learned to write our benefits in the sand and our injuries in marble. We've learned to make a home on the bottom, afraid of what it would actually mean for us to try to climb out of the dark again. This man, however, he continues to climb and reach. Even after his entire plot had been completely destroyed, he still reaches out in hopes that the next scene will be better, that how it is right now isn't how it's always going to be. He looks to the one who is ever looking at you and is promised that in paradise he will be remembered, restored. That there in that place that we know as paradise, all of his pieces will be put back together again. What he did, what others did to him, the hurt, the pain, the loss, the regrets, the shame, the despair, depression and trauma, all of those things that made him feel like he was a walking shell of his former self, all of those pieces will come back together again. He will be remembered. That's what we call dismiss a saint because he has the audacity to hope, even when the evidence for doing so is gone. You know, hope has this artless etymology that is based upon the word hop, which implies it has us choose to keep moving and risk looking foolish as we do. 
Though our pain and our regrets are real, hope moves forward under even the weakest conviction that the universe is ultimately benevolent, if indeed the author is love. And so look to the one in the middle. Who is ever looking at you? With whatever dream you have left in your tank, with however feeble and flickering and mixed with doubt it remains, look at the man in the middle. Who is ever looking at you? Look at him with whatever faith you have and know that your worry about your lack of faith is itself a sign of faith. Look to the one who is ever looking at you. For the first person that Jesus shows up with back at home in paradise is a crook that was condemned to death, forever reminding us that there is more mercy in God than mess in us and that our story is not over quite yet. Face. 
still Earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal Earth has no sorrow that heaven can heal It's been felt by even more that to parent a child is to put your heart outside of your body with no defense for the arrows on their way. A parent's heart is a punctured heart, wounded from the wear and tear of love. And in the course of human history, perhaps few hearts have been as bruised and bloodied up as the heart of Mary, the mother of the Messiah. For us today, to think of Jesus is to think of Mary, for it was from her that he received his humanity, the color of his eyes, the cut of his nose, the strange way that he smiled even when words weren't being spoken. The way he laughed was like her father's laugh. The way he danced was like her mother's. Mary is the one who taught Jesus how to talk, how to walk, how to read. She's the one who kissed his knees when he fell, and it was her bed that Jesus ran to when nightmares would wake him up. To the rest of the world, Jesus was the teacher. He was the Messiah, the rabbi, savior. But for Mary, that was her baby. The soft space in her heart that would never grow hard, even when everything else around her did. As Jesus grew older, and as Jesus' work began, the punctures to that heart came a little quicker. There was a space over time that seemed to grow between the two. We, we first noticed it stretch at a wedding in Cana, the moment when the wine ran out. Knowing what her child was capable of doing, Mary turned to her son, her baby boy, and told him what had happened. And when she did, Jesus looked back at her with the eyes of a stranger instead of a son, and he said to her, woman, what does that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The parent's heart is a punctured heart. And with a face flushed in red, damming up the tears that were welling beneath, Mary looked around at others who were close by, and then she looked at the floor and she muttered, listen, you just do whatever he tells you. These would be the last words that we ever hear from Mary. These five words were her last five words that the writer would write down. It's almost as if they knew at this point that the right thing to do would be to turn the cameras off and just leave Mary alone. Wasn't it obvious that she was going through enough? Her baby who had always been hers and this mother who had always been his. To him, she was now just a woman and to her, he was becoming a wound. The one who used to squeeze her hand whenever they go into the market because he hated the sound of loud noises. He clung only to his hour now, to the time that had come. And no one, not even his mother, could have a part in this man if they wouldn't also participate in this hour. For thousands of years, theologians have helped us connect the theological dots so that we can make sense of the story and the relationship at hand of what's happening here, why it's happening here. But with all due respect, this is not a theological issue. It's easy to study the psychology of a broken heart and learn what happens to our neurons when we ache, but it's another thing entirely to reach out for the one that you love, that you have always loved, and discover that they aren't doing the same for you. And yet, despite Mary's prayers that this man would eventually come home and be her boy once again, 
what happened in Cana didn't stay in Cana. At one point later, Jesus was speaking and a crowd pressed up against him. The crowd was leaving with no space to eat or think or breathe. And in the midst of the chaos and the uproar, Mary's brow started to crease in the corner of the crowd. And she shouted, give that man some space. She yells at the bodies that wouldn't budge back. She stays on the side as she worries about her child. And then she sends somebody into the frenzy on behalf of the family with a message. Tell him that we're here, she says, hoping that he might care. Mary watches the man enter into the crowd and elbows his way towards her son. The message was given, and yet as she watched, she noticed that Jesus still wasn't coming. Instead of climbing down from his post and heading towards his kin, he only climbs higher and he stays with the crowd. He looks at the man and he looks at the crowds and he shouts, Who are my mom? Who is my brothers? Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. Whoever does God's will, that's my family. Brother, sister, mother. Their voices weren't captured in the Gospels on that day, but there are some who were there that swear they saw tears sliding down Mary's cheeks and off of her trembling lips that muttered, I'm your mom, and these are your brothers. On another occasion, there was a woman who yelled out in the crowd, Blessed is the mother that gave you birth and nursed you. A high praise for Mary that was just about to fully sink in when she heard her own son, her own flesh and blood, speak up and say, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed rather. A parent's heart is a punctured heart. Mary had lost her son long before the world would ever sing about it. That baby who used to bury his head in her chest, the one that she held so close, he now seemed so far away. But he never actually really was because Mary kept walking with her son, with her boy. Even when all of his friends had left, Mary never flinched. She stayed with him all the way from the wedding in Cana to the wounds of the cross where this mother watched her baby being broken and bent and pinned against the beams and she never once left. She didn't flinch, she didn't look away. She wept, she wept those deep tears that all parents care with them. Those tears that come out when you see your child in pain, you know that there's nothing that you can do to make it stop. There are no kisses that can take the agony away. She had no beds that he could climb into where she could wrap him up in her whisper, everything is going to be okay as she would stroke his dark hair. All she had was her tears and her stubborn love that kept walking even as his love left her with a limp. And then on a hill far away, she watched the love of her life, her own sweet baby boy that was born underneath Christmas's star, being completely torn apart in front of her. And yet even still, he didn't forget her. With a little life that was left in, left in him, he lifted up his head off the back of that beam and he looked into her eyes. And then he spoke to the man who was standing next to her and he said, boy, take care of my mom. Take care of her. Treat her like you are her son. 
Scriptures say that from that point on, that man that was next to his mom, he took Mary home and he cared for her. And in the middle of that pain and that promise and those punctures for Mary while she sat at home, it all started to make sense. When Jesus said to take care of my mom, Mary understood that all that had been taken from her as a mom, Mary understood that her son's love, contrary to what she felt for herself, it never actually stopped. He had always loved her. He was always loving her. All the space, the separation, the cold shoulders, and all the pain, it was all preparation for this moment on this hill. Her child had led her through a thousand deaths before this death because he knew that his mom had to learn how to let him go before she'd have to watch him be taken away. Not every mom or dad knows best, but this one would. Mary is the first disciple because Mary was the first to understand that love is always fierce, even if love is always fragile. It dares greatly, but it holds loosely. Mary is the first disciple because she is the first to follow with open hands and a heart that is willing to be wounded yet unwilling to stop walking. Mary is the first disciple because Mary was the first to love Jesus like Jesus loves us, that different kind of love that in the midst of being crucified still forgives the crucifier. And, and despite the pain that was present in the thousands of deaths that preceded this moment, Mary knew the promise that was in there as well, that the hope that the world was about to hold. When the world wrapped the body of her baby boy and they laid him inside of a grave, Mary had the wisdom to see past all that pain and she saw the gardener planting a seed into the soil. When the world threw the corpse behind a stone inside of a tomb, Mary smiled because she could hear the kicking that was happening inside of the womb. And so we make our way to the foot of the cross in the footsteps of Mother Mary. With all of our pain and God, why have you forsaken me moments, Mary reminds us not to answer that question before God gets a chance to speak. Mary reminds us that strength is not the absence of wounds, but the wounded who are willing to keep walking. For a parent's heart is a punctured heart, and there is nothing more powerful than that. Oh. 
全部，全部。Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Will you join me with these words? Forgive us, Father, for we do not know what we do. In our efforts to honor you as a person, we have forgotten to follow you as a path. With clenched fists and fearful eyes, we have held onto our lives too long. And so tonight, we ask for courage, Lord. We ask for courage to let the seed fall. We ask for courage to trust that birth begins in what's buried. We ask for courage to believe that weakness is the way. We ask for courage to love even if it leads to loss. We ask for courage to seek you when we cannot be seen, to hold on when it feels like we aren't being held, and to keep walking when there are stones in the way. In the soil of Good Friday, we lay these seeds, trusting in the harvest of Easter. With you, we will rise again. Let there be. 
new 